something very special about gathering together on the Lord's day as the Lord's people. Uh, it is, we do so not out of a ritual or out of legalism, but out of delight. We live busy lives. Satan wants us to be bound up in the busyness of all sorts of things and to be discouraged by all sorts of things. But there's something very wonderful uh, about coming together uh, around the word of God. And so we do that and we dive back into our study of the gospel of Mark this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're working our way verse by verse through this precious gospel. And we find ourselves this morning in Mark 9 once again. We're making some headway. So turn with me in your Bibles and follow along with me as I read. Verses 30 to 41 is where I want to draw your attention this morning. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through to verse 41. From there, they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher. We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the immense privilege it is. Father, we ask in desperation, really, would you teach us, would you send the truth teacher, the Holy Spirit of God to move among us? Would you help us now? For we are so very needy. Give us attentive hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. The term enemy is not generally one that conjures up a positive feeling, right? Enemy is a term rich in emotion, one that puts us on guard. Spiritually, as we think about our arch enemy, the devil, or... Physically, any earthly enemy we may have, or sadder yet, when we treat our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, similar to how the world treats their enemies. 
Or when we think of world wars or fictional battles between good and bad, whatever it may be, the word enemy is not the most delightful term. Yet what is even less delightful is when we consider that our greatest enemy, my greatest enemy, your greatest enemy, is not someone who is against us or even those who are mistreating us. Instead, our greatest enemy is within us. And that enemy is pride. And generally speaking, when you have an enemy or enemies, there you have war. And when you have a war, you generally have two opposing forces. And so present within us is not only our greatest enemy, but also our greatest ally. And if pride is our greatest enemy, then humility is certainly our greatest friend. So there is this battle that takes place within each and every one of us between our pride and between our humility. And the title of the message this morning is True Greatness. And the reason being is that there is indeed a greatness that Jesus wants us to strive for. Jesus doesn't negate the striving of greatness. He isn't against greatness. He just has demands on how his disciples achieve true greatness. And what hinders that greatness is pride. And anything that helps with achieving that greatness is humility. We've seen that Jesus and his inner circle of three, Peter, James and John, have just come off the mountain, a mountain of transfiguration where Christ revealed his greatness and his glory. And then we saw last week this lesson on faith. And now after departing from that encounter, Jesus and the 12 disciples then make their way toward Galilee, where Jesus is now making a V-line for the cross to fulfill the very reason he came. The reason he came was not to ultimately feed the poor, to heal the sick. The reason he came was to atone for the sins of his people. And this is where the narrative picks up there in verse 30. And it's there that we see the first of three headings that I have for you this morning. And I want to give you all three of those right up front as this morning we consider true greatness. We'll see number one, a crucified and risen Savior in verses 30 to 32. Then we'll see an uncrucified lust for preeminence in verses 33 to 37. And then third and final, we'll see a clarifying moment in verses 38 through 41. A crucified and risen Savior, an uncrucified lust for preeminence, and a clarifying moment. And so let's begin. Number one, a crucified and risen Savior in verse 30 and 32. It's here we see humility vividly and drastically illustrated as Jesus tells the twelve for the second time now about the death that awaits the Messiah. They're heading back through Galilee on their way to Capernaum. And look at the end of verse 30. It says that Jesus doesn't want anyone to know about it. Galilee was the place where Jesus had done most of his ministry. It's where he called the twelve. 
It's now a place he doesn't want to be seen in. Not because he's become a snob, but because he is fixated on teaching the 12 men who will become the apostles of the church, the teachers of the apostolic doctrine of the church, authors of inspired scripture. And also the fact that he, the son of man, is going to be killed and rise again. Look at verse 31. Beginning of verse 31, you see four. It's a Greek word, gar. It's explanatory. It's explaining. This is the reason why he didn't want anyone to know about it, because he was teaching those disciples. But they didn't understand in verse 32, it says. They didn't understand this statement. And more than that, not only did they didn't understand, they were afraid to even ask Jesus about it. They didn't understand what was going on. Well, on first appearance, you... It's that old chestnut again, that the twelve are thick as bricks. Um, that we marvel how they're unable to comprehend what's been told of them now multiple times. And part of the reason for that inability to understand is indeed that deep ingrained view they had of the Messiah. That any idea of the Messiah, uh, of, of Israel being killed is absolutely absurd to them. Jesus hadn't even mentioned the scandal that it will be for the Messiah to die on a criminal's cross. He hadn't mentioned that yet. But the fact that the Messiah would die and suffer, they, they cannot comprehend it. That's part of it. The other part of it is, this inability for them to understand, is due to what we see in Luke's account, Luke chapter 9, verse 44 and 45, Jesus tells them, let me read it for you. He says, let these words sink into your ears for the son of man is going back to be delivered into the hands of men. And then verse 45, but they did not understand the statement. Now listen to this. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. Wow. People want to talk about a Jesus who wouldn't dare impose his will on others. Well, he does that. He did that when he summoned the twelve to himself. But he does more than that. He, he conceals the truth from his disciples here. And you know what? There's a mercy in that. There's a grace in him doing so. It was too much for them to handle. A gruesome death at the hands of the chief priests. And the chief priests had taught them about this view of the Messiah. A gruesome death as Roman soldiers put him up on a cross. It was, it was too much for them to handle. And the Lord conceals the gravity of it. He wanted them to hear the words in preparation, but he concealed the details of what was to come so as not to overwhelm them. Fascinating, really, right? And you know what? I wouldn't be surprised at all in any way, shape or form if Jesus does that at times for you and I. If we knew all the details about particular things that were to come, we wouldn't cope. It'd be too much. And so in his grace, he conceals the full extent of what's to come out of his mercy, out of his grace. We have our limits. God, sure, he stretches us. He even gives us things we can hardly bear. And he certainly breaks us in order to make us useful in his hands. But... More than we often give credence to, he protects us and provides for us. And here's an example of 
than just that. And so the twelve are not understanding. They're afraid to ask. Why are they afraid to ask? Well, they probably recall what happened when Peter asked. (laughs) He got called Satan, right? But what Jesus is presenting here in these opening words is, in verse 30 and 31, as they travel, is the example of humility. The greatest example of humility. Jesus is putting himself first as the God-man, as an example of true greatness. The the great God-man who, by his humility, veiled his glory and greatness in human flesh and came down as 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 one in the likeness of man. And it's he that will go to the cross, not as a king, but as a a criminal. The the king of all kings stooped down in humility to be a servant. And such an obedient servant that he follows through and suffers and dies for his people. Such humility by Jesus. And so Jesus is vividly displaying this humility. And it's against the backdrop of humility that makes what occurs next so vile. Against the backdrop of such humility, we see next, point number two, an uncrucified lust for preeminence. Here, pride and prominence pop up. They came, they arrive in Capernaum. They'd been walking for a while. You don't see that in Mark, but you see it in Luke. They'd been having some disturbing discussions as they go. The word discussing there is too light. They were going back and forth, arguing and debating among themselves. And now they arrive in in Capernaum. And this will be the last time they ever are there in their hometown before the cross. And being back in headquarters, it says when he was in the house. And previously, when they were traveling up north, there was a house. This is the house. They are back in Peter's house. This is the headquarters. And after this lengthy walk, and Jesus certainly walking ahead of them, no doubt being able to hear what they were saying, asked them a question. Verse 33 began to question them. You know what? Questions can be great things. And we've seen that throughout the Gospel of Mark. There are so many questions. We don't have time to look at how many questions from Mark chapter 1 through to Mark chapter 9 where Jesus has asked questions time and time again. You don't get that in the other Gospels. You get it in this Gospel. Questions can be great things. Often in my uh, martial arts class, our instructor will begin the class by asking students if they have any questions about any techniques or anything like that. And, you know, sometimes there's silence. People don't want to be... answer give a silly answer or or whatever but for the instructor it's a great way to ascertain where the student is at what they're learning what they still need to learn a question is a great way to glean where someone is and and to teach them as they grow and so jesus is the master asker of questions and so for jesus the question he poses to the 12 there in the house is not to learn more information For he knew their hearts on the matter, Matthew tells us in his account. But the reason Jesus asks is that there might be opportunity to teach. This is why he doesn't want to be seen by anyone or bothered by anyone. He wants to be able to have the freedom undisrupted to teach. And so Jesus asks a piercing question. And you can imagine the scene. 
They've walked for days and now they're in the house. And Jesus asks the question, so, so what were you, what were you discussing on the way as you walked? Look at the response, verse 34, they kept silent. School was now in session and they'd been caught out. Because on the way, look at the remainder of verse 34, they had been discussing among themselves with one another, which of them was the greatest. Here's a scandal playing out. In the backdrop of such humility of Christ, these 12 men were selected by Jesus. They were lowly fishermen. They were destitute tax collectors. They were being discipled and trained by the suffering humble servant himself And here they were involved in prolonged, intense discussion on which of them is the greatest. And and as Matthew lets us know more specifically, the concept of which is the greatest is which one of them will be the greatest in the kingdom. They're asked the question, they keep silent. Such was the shame This question came out of the blue. (laughs) It caused them to be under such conviction that it closed their mouths. And here, as one commentator remarked, was something very sad playing out. Quote, the Lord had just spoken about his humiliation in going to the cross. But all the disciples could think about now was their own exaltation. End quote. And Christ was on his way to be crucified, and the twelve are now possessed with an uncrucified lust for preeminence. And here's the problem. This kind of jockeying for preeminence only causes chaos and division. Who knows? Was the inner circle of the three who've just witnessed the glory, were they provoking the others to jealousy? Were the three being puffed up with pride because they were taken to other places like the transfiguration that the other nine were not? I got my maths right. We don't know exactly what was causing all of this, but what we do know is that pride was winning the war in the hearts of the twelve. And and considering that, that these men, they go on to preach the gospel, they go on to establish the foundation of the church. Jesus needed to deal with their hearts in this moment. And so here he was in the house exposing their selfish ambition. Instead of being preoccupied with servanthood in line with the servant himself, Jesus the humble, they were preoccupied with esteem and regard. And knowing what was at stake, Jesus has a lesson that needs to be taught. And Jesus then does, we see in verse 35, he does what rabbis did in that day to exercise authority and to let everyone know that what is about to be said is extremely important. He sits down. You recall on top of the mountain, 
Jesus in the Beatitudes went up in the mountain and he sat down. Here he does it again, exercising his authority. And then he summons the twelve to himself. All this is to emphasize the seriousness of the matter. And he says there in verse 35, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last. What exactly does Jesus mean by that? This is something that Jesus has said repeatedly in his ministry. Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, after speaking with the rich young ruler, he says, many who are first will be last and the last first. Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, the last shall be first and the first last. And in Luke 13, 30, behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. And here in Mark, amidst the disciples jockeying among themselves for the prominent place and for the preeminence, he says it again. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. What does he mean, though? Well, I want you to imagine that we all meet here next Saturday, 2 p.m. And we gather out there on the basketball court and we're going to get ready for a race. Across the cricket ground, over the rugby field. And the finish line is out by St. George's Road out there. But the rule is that the last must be first. And the first must be last. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Think about what that would literally look like. Well, (laughs) it would be pretty hilarious, for one, as we all made our way to the finish line. (laughs) All the youngsters took off and all the oldsters are still taking off. And everywhere in between. But if we kept to the premise that the last must be first and the first must be last. As we all ran the race, what would happen? Well, what would happen was, no matter what took place on the journey there. No matter who pressed ahead or who took a while. We would all cross the line together. And that's what's happening. That's the lesson there. That we all finish the race together. That's what Jesus is saying here. For the twelve, and for each and every one of us who follow Jesus, we will run the race of the Christian life doing different things with different gifts, but we all finish together. And so in the midst of this chaos of jockeying for the front space, Jesus says, no, 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 we'll all finish Together. Look at the end of verse 35. This is how you finish up. We all serve one another. We don't serve ourselves, but we serve others. So this is Jesus attempting to remedy the pride in the hearts of the disciples. Who would have ever thought that these lowly fishermen from little old places and a dirty old tax collector would now be in a state where they are craving supremacy. Who who would have ever thought? Behold the danger of pride. Jesus is trying to remedy this here. 
true greatness in the kingdom is not those with the most earthly esteem and earthly glory. True greatness is the kingdom in the kingdom is he who is being a servant most. It's here that Jesus takes the definition of greatness and turns it on its head. You see, for the world, both for them back then and most certainly for us now, greatness is bound up in accolade and adoration and glory here on earth, achieved by seeking prominence and by any means possible. But for Jesus, who I want to remind you, is not negating the necessity to be great in the kingdom. He wants us to strive to be great. But he's saying here, for Jesus, greatness is about servanthood. Contrary to the world's ways of greatness, which is seeking self-glory and self-esteem, Christ's way of attaining greatness is by serving. We increase our greatness by being willing to increase being servant of all. And what makes this incredible is that in God's economy, I want you to underline this, greatness is not equated with giftedness. It's not. Look, it won't be the famous authors that we love to read. It won't be the famous preachers that we love to listen to who will be the greatest in the kingdom. Oh, they're so gifted and they're so great and they are. But greatness is not equated with giftedness. You want to know who will be the greatest in the kingdom? People you've never heard of. People who serve with motivations not for the spotlight, but for the Savior's delight. And that can be in the confines of a local church in a local community, or it can be out in the jungles, out in the wildest, most isolated place. For in both places, you can have both pride and humility on display. Sadly, the pride of seeking prominence is haunting the twelve. And this uncrucified lust that, that is a hallmark from them is a, is a hallmark for many and it haunts churches and ministries and ministers and pulpits the world over. And what is indicative of this kind of thing, this kind of selfish ambition in the lives of the twelve than any other caught in by its grip? What is indicative? It's this. Selfish ambition has as its aim and goal self-glorification. Selfish ambition has as its aim and goal self-glorification. Let me show you this very thing playing out. Look over at Mark chapter 10 and look at verse 35. Just prior to this, this is the third time Jesus tells them again, the Messiah is going to suffer. And look at this, in verse 34, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, come up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you <laughs> to do for us whatever we ask of you. James and John, filled with arrogance and selfish ambition, walk right up to Jesus and say, we want you to do whatever you, whatever you ask of us. Whatever we ask of you. And Jesus, fully aware of this uncrucified lust for preeminence, asks them what they're craving. 
What do you want? What do you crave? What do you, what do you want me to do for you? What are you desirous for me to do for you? And they answer in verse 37. This is unbelievable. Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Think about it. Verses 33 and 34, Jesus had just told them again that he's going to suffer. And then James and John, still thinking that there's going to be this instant ushering in of a utopian type of kingdom then and there on earth. They ask, look carefully again at the words of verse 37. They ask that that we might sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. In their understanding, on earth. That Christ might be shining forth his glory and that they might be the prominent ones sitting either side of that. They wanted to be seated next to the king as his glory shone forth. And this is a lust for prominence. This is selfish ambition, which has as its aim their self-glorification. It's damaging, it's disgusting and only ever wreaks havoc and the root of it is pride pride it stands in utter contrast to true humility and true greatness true greatness says to be the greatest in the kingdom you must be the servant of all jesus will go on in just a few moments later in verses 30 a 43 to 45 of mark chapter 10 and say whoever wishes Sorry, first he says, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And begins there by saying that whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be servant of all. And what is most astounding is James and John's boldness. The, with which they asked Jesus to be seated on either side of him, to receive self-glory. Their, their boldness is astounding. The lust of preeminence had consumed them. The pride of it had blinded them. And instead of serving, they are seeking. And so here in Mark 10 and back in our passage in Mark 8, we see Jesus isn't cutting down, again, any notion of greatness and accolade. No, he is saying that there will indeed be levels of greatness in the kingdom. He wasn't a communist. But what Jesus is doing is turning the attaining of greatness upside down and saying that true greatness is by serving others. This this kind of pride that was manifest in the life of the disciples and manifests in the life of of anyone, any of his followers, with this uncrucified lust of preeminence, it only causes discord because you see there in verse 41 of Mark chapter 10, you see there, after hearing this, what, hearing what? The words of James and John. After hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant toward them, toward James and John. Don't be fooled. (laughs) The other disciples would have happily sat at the left and right of Jesus. Here they're displaying their own selfish motives. They were upset that James and John had went ahead of them and beat them to this request for prominence. This is all ugly. 
Pride is always ugly. But in the life of the believer, any selfish ambition always brings about disunity and disaster. Listen to the words from James chapter 3, verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And so here in the midst of the twelve displaying this uncrucified lust, you have humility incarnate. Christ himself seeking to teach them that we all finish at the same time. And the reason we all finish at the same time and the reason that we will be great in the kingdom is because we serve one another. Not seeking to outdo one another. Oh, how damaging this is. In verse 36 and 37 of our passage this morning in Mark chapter 8, Jesus then gives a word picture of what this looks like. Here's an object lesson by Jesus in verse 36, taking a child. Here he is inside of Peter's house, taking a child. He set him before them, sits him up, taking him in his arms, and he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. He takes a kid, sits him up on his knee. What's going on? What's happening here? Jesus isn't talking about literal children. Matthew tells us that Jesus is using the child as an illustration of a believer, of believers, of disciples, of weak and feeble disciples. And the lesson here is not primarily primarily that we are to be like children. Though we are to be of that such a simple mind in order to be converted, the lesson here is not that we are to be like children, but that we are to be like Jesus. That is the lesson here. And serve even the neediest among us. Jesus has just said, we all finish first. We all do that by serving one another. And here's an object lesson. We serve even the neediest among us. Serve others. Serve all, he says, particularly the neediest. So we've seen humility illustrated in point one, a crucified and risen saviour. We've just seen pride made evident in point two, where the twelve are filled with a lust for preeminence. And and now last we see in verse 38 to 41, a clarifying moment. Clarifying moment. Because here we see misplaced zeal by John. Verse 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent them because he was not following us. John is obviously insecure about Jesus' words that we all finish together and the picture of that child. And John now says something that need not be said, but because of his insecurity, he says it. You ever done that? It never goes well. Notice John says he's following us. Us. Not you. Us. And as Jesus seeks to dent and destroy the pride of the twelve, John gets a sense that, uh, that, that Jesus is coming after him and he's now trying to turn attention back to himself and the twelve. Very obvious what John's doing here. He shows the reason that they prevented others was because they weren't part of this elite group. And what was on display here is a very special form of pride. Spiritual pride. Arguably the most 
deadly. Where the mindset is an elitist, we are the only church doing the only work of God kind of attitude. Jesus then, still with the kid in his arms, for sure, displays that he is not interested in entertaining self-seeking spiritual pride. He has no time for this elitist mindset because he says there in verses 39 through 40, do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. You see, John was seeking accolade and esteem as one of the band of brothers chosen by the Messiah. They, they not only were craving prominence, they were now corporately elite in their prideful mind but jesus cuts straight through that and says don't hinder them you're either for us or against us and john he's saying what and who is for me john is a whole lot bigger than you think i always say we'll be surprised to be in the kingdom And we'll be surprised who's not in the kingdom. And Jesus is teaching them here. And this is all such an expose of the human heart, is it not? You and I can be just like the twelve. Sure, we can reflect the glory of God in our lives, but we want a little glory for ourselves, A little accolade and esteem to be thought of as great and grand. I think one of the ways we can be found seeking this self-glory is by speaking ill of other people. Often the reason you have bullies. They tear down in the hope that they build up. We speak ill of others in order to place ourselves on a pedestal, whether our deceitful hearts or not allow us to be made aware of that, what we're actually doing. But you know how it goes tear others down in order to prop ourselves up in order to seek our self-glory remember pride has as its aim self-glorification john was doing that here we've done it ever since it shouldn't be so it mustn't be so john calvin said quote listen to this carefully god cannot bear with seeing his glory appropriated by the creature even in the smallest degree So intolerable to him is the sacrilegious arrogance of those who by elevating themselves obscure his glory, end quote. That is the peril of this kind of pride that wages war in my heart and your heart. This kind of self-glorification where you, you're no longer comfortable in your own skin and you seek the skin of someone else and you crave with an uncrucified lust to thrust yourself in some type of prominent place. Well, when you do that, dear brothers and sisters, you obscure the glory of God. That is not something that I would want to do because lightning will strike. You obscure the glory of God by trying to claim some of it for yourself. Humility demands the opposite. Humility demands that the sign of true greatness is true servanthood to all. 
Second John demonstrates a man named Diotrephes. Describes him this way. In the church, he loved to have the preeminence. But all won't be lost on John and James and the other ten. These men who are here at present in this narrative, consumed by this craving and jockeying for the top spot, they would eventually go on and be great in the kingdom of God. Why? Because once Jesus Christ goes to the cross and atones for the sin and ascends to the Father and the Spirit comes down, they would learn the meaning of what it means to be truly great in the sight of God. And that is to serve one another. As things get tough, they'd preach the good news. As things get tough, they'd seek to live for the glory of God and steal none of it for themselves. These men who jockeyed here would die a martyr's death. Jesus concludes this clarifying moment by what he says in verse 41. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ. Truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. This is really a reminder of what he said in verse 37. It's this, that even the most insignificant acts of service will not go unnoticed or unrewarded. For pastors, our acts of service are done publicly. For those that serve even the most menial tasks, it will not go unnoticed or unrewarded. Whereas we begin to bring this all home and sum it up, how do we do that? Well, pride seeks self-glory. Humility seeks God's glory. And woe be to any of us who obscure God's glory and stand in His majestic way. It was John Stott, the old Anglican minister, who said, quote, In every step of our Christian growth and maturity and throughout every act of our service to others, our greatest foe is pride and our greatest ally is humility. End quote. C.J. Mahaney took those words, picked up on those exact words, and in 2005 wrote a wonderful little book on this topic called Humility and True Greatness. And over 10 years, over a decade of heart searching, he formed a treatise, if you will, on how to kill your greatest enemy pride and how to strengthen your greatest friend, humility. And let me offer you some of those just very quickly. He says, number one, If you want to kill pride and cultivate humility so as to be great in the kingdom of God, he says, number one, reflect on the wonder of the cross. That when you fill your affections with the cross of Christ, there will be no room for pride. He said also, begin each day by acknowledging your need for God. Begin each day that that, that by what you do is you take every thought captive He also said, begin each day by expressing gratitude for God. 
That by doing so, you, ca- you cultivate a life of, of gratitude and crucify discontentment. One man rightly observed, thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. You want to crucify pride? Be thankful. He also says, stay charged up. And by that, CJ means keep in prayer. And that when you feel overwhelmed and when you feel snowed under, the real issue is pride and self-sufficiency. So pray in dependence upon God, he says. And last, he says, accept the gift of sleep. Now, it seems like a strange one to end on, but hey, he, he spent a decade making this list, so let's just hear him out. See what he means. CJ means ensure you get enough sleep. And by doing so, CJ says that we are acknowledging our need for God, that we are not self-sufficient, but in need of his grace. And that by getting the proper sleep that we need, acknowledging it as a gift from God, it's an opportunity to mortify pride, self-reliance and cultivate humility. And a reminder of your full dependence upon him. So go to bed. What can we draw from this piece of gospel narrative? How can we apply this? And I would say one of the ways is that we must always remember that we are servants. What's the motivation of a servant? It's to do his master's will. What does the gospel of Mark present? It presents Jesus as the suffering servant. It doesn't even have a genealogy. Because all the servant does is hurry around serving. I think we can convert, we can forget that we are slaves of Christ. That we are not our own. That we have been bought with a price. The shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that we must no longer live for ourselves. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died, it says. Jesus died so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. We live in a world where true greatness is to seek accolade and esteem by elevating ourselves and living for ourselves. But God tells us that the way to greatness is to serve others. It has been well said that the symbol of our faith is a cross and not a ladder. We need to die to self and out of delight serve because serving others is a genuine expression of humility. The words of the hymn that we sung, that we spoke about, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss And pour contempt on all my pride. Would you look afresh this morning at the cross? Would you survey it afresh? Would you look afresh at the person of Christ and survey him afresh and pursue true greatness? By serving others and not ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the immense privilege it is to be A servant. Father, would you forgive us for where we have been 
poor servants. Lord, we want to hear you say on that day, enter in, good and faithful servant. To be good and faithful, we must be humble. Would you do a work in each and every one of us and pull out by the root the pride that so easily damages us and sows discord amongst us? And Would you help us to strengthen our greatest friend, ally, humility? Help us to survey the cross and always remember that we are servants. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.